Hey everyone, how's it going tonight? You know, we're going to be talking about the alien abduction of Betty and Barney Hill from 1961. You know, this seems to be the one that uh, really got a lot of news attention, and I'm excited, and I hope you're excited as well. So please stay with us as we delve into their story of alien abduction. So grab yourself a drink and a snack, turn off the lights on your way back, grab yourself a nice comfy spot, and enjoy this episode of Paranomaly. Hey everyone, Todd here with Paranomaly. You know, with the thousands and thousands of UFO sightings, we don't hear much in the in the the way of alien abductions. I mean, really, if you think about it, there hasn't been a lot of reported abductions. Now, understandably, that there's not going to be people that are willingly ready to just come out and say, hey, I was abducted by aliens. And this is what happened. A lot of people ain't going to do that. This is uh, just reality. I mean, I don't think that if I was abducted, I would say anything. I I wouldn't. The, the ridicule that you'll get, the people saying that it's not true, um, and, and the burden of proof obviously lies on the person that is making the claim. But uh, one that I actually find really interesting is uh, a Betty and Barney Hill abduction from 1961. Uh, now, they claim to have been abducted by extraterrestrials in a rural portion of New Hampshire. And uh, that was on September 19th and 20th, 1961. Now, theirs has been the the first widely publicized claim of alien abduction. And uh, it was actually, because it was so popular, it was adapted into a best-selling 66 book, The Interrupted Journey, and the 1975 television movie, The UFO Incident. So uh, if you think about it, there's... Theirs is one that just really come out, uh, you know, they, they're like, hey, I'm just going to say what happened. And if people believe it, they believe it. If not, then, oh, well. But uh, now many of uh, Betty Hill's notes, tapes, documents, everything else pertaining to this is uh, it's at a collection in um, the University of New Hampshire. That was her alma mater. So uh, that's where that is. And also of just some interest here, uh, July 2011th, uh, the site of the alleged craft's close encounter was marked by a state historical marker. So apparently they took this one kind of serious, which is good. Now, the Hills lived in Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire. And the encounter, according to a variety of reports given by the Hills, um, the sighting happened on September 19, 1961, around 10.30 p.m. 
Now, the Hills were driving back to Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Uh, there were only a few other cars on the road as they made their way home to New Hampshire's seacoast. And just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, Betty claimed to have observed a bright point of light in the sky that moved from below the moon and planet Jupiter upwards to the west of the moon. So, while Barney navigated U.S. Route 3, Betty reasoned that she was observing a fallen star, only it moved upward like a plane or a satellite. And since it moved erratically and grew bigger and brighter, Betty urged Barney to stop the car for a closer look. So Barney stopped at a scenic picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. Worried about the presence of bears, Barney retrieved a pistol that he had concealed in the trunk of the car. Uh, Betty, through her binoculars, observed an odd-shaped craft flashing multicolored lights travel across the face of the moon. Uh, her sister had confided in her about having a flying saucer sighted several years earlier. So Betty thought it might be what she was observing. Now, through binoculars, Barney observed what he reasoned was a commercial airliner traveling towards Vermont on its way to Montreal. However, he soon changed his mind because without looking as if it turned, the craft rapidly descended in his direction. Now, this observation caused Barney to realize this object that he thought was a plane was not a plane. Now, he quickly returned to the car and drove towards Franconia Notch, and that's a narrow mountainous stretch of road. And the, the hills claimed that they continued driving on isolated road, moving very slowly through Franconia Notch in order to observe the object as it came even closer. Now, at one point, the object passed above a restaurant and a signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain. It passed over the mountain and came out near the old man of the mountain. So, very interesting that uh, they actually tried to figure out where this thing was going or where it was coming. So, now Betty testified that it was at least one and a half times the length of the granite cliff profile. Now, that profile, uh, it's 40 feet long, and she said it seemed to be rotating. Now, the couple watched as the silent illuminated craft moved erratically and bounced back and forth in the night sky. And as they drove along Route 3 through Franconia Notch, they stated that it seemed to be playing a cat and mouse with them. Interesting. So it's basically following them, kind of hiding, and then following them. I'm, I'm guessing. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. Now, approximately one mile south of Indian Head... They said the object rapidly descended towards their vehicle, causing Barney to stop directly in the middle of the highway. Now, the huge silent craft hovered approximately 80 to 100 feet above the hills. Now, it filled the entire windshield, the whole front of the windshield. So that right there is uh, pretty impressive, that it would be so big that it completely covers your window when looking out at it. Now, carrying his pistol, he stepped away from the vehicle and moved closer to the object. 
and using the binoculars, Barney claimed to have seen about 8 to 11 humanoid figures who were peering out of the craft's windows. He said that they seemed to be looking at him in unison, and all but one figure moved to what appeared to be a panel on the rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the craft. Interesting. Now, one remaining figure continued to look at Barney and communicated a message telling him to stay where you are and keep looking. Interesting. Now, Barney had a conscious, continuous recollection of observing the humanoid forms wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. Now, this is interesting because there have been other people that report um, similar kind of attire that these UFOs or these uh, aliens are are wearing. And uh, glossy black cap uniforms and black hats, that... uh, that's pretty interesting. Now, red lights on what appeared to be uh, batwing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the craft, and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft. Now, the silent craft approached what Barney estimated was within 50 to 80 feet overhead and 300 feet away from him. And on October 21st, 1961, Barney reported to the NICAP investigator, Walter Webb, that the beings were somehow not human. Now, Barney tore the binoculars away from his eyes and ran back to his car. And in a near hysterical state, he told Betty, they're going to capture us. He saw the object again shift its location to directly above the vehicle. He drove away at high speed, telling Betty to look for the object. She rolled down the window and looked up, but saw only darkness above them even though it was a bright, starry night. So, interesting, again, they are playing cat and mouse. Now, almost immediately, the hills heard rhythmic series of beeping, buzzing sounds, which they seemed to bounce off the trunk of their vehicle. Uh, The car vibrated and tingled. Sensation passed through the hills' bodies, and Betty touched the metal of the passenger door, expecting to feel an electric shock, but she only felt the vibration. The Hills said that at this point in time, they experienced the onset of an altered state of consciousness that left their minds dull. Now, this is interesting because other people who are abducted claim to hear uh, a humming or buzzing sound. So this is very interesting. And some of the, the people that claim this directly after usually they uh they can't even remember time so a second series of code like beeping or buzzing sounds returned the couple to full consciousness so it was somehow communing with communicating with them you know through uh sound which again people claim they hear that buzzing or um In this case, a beeping, and that's when everything starts to happen. Now, they found they traveled 35 miles south, but they had only a vague spotty memory of the the section of road. Uh, They recalled making a sudden unplanned turn, encountering a roadblock, and observing a fiery orb in the road. 
So that's interesting. So this kind of... Now they see these beings in shiny black uniforms with hats. They somehow come to this encountered a, a roadblock here and observed a fiery orb in the road. Could it have been some kind of military type of, of training or it's, it's very interesting. Now, arriving home about dawn, the Hills assert that they had some odd sensations and impulses that they couldn't readily explain. Now, Betty insisted their luggage be kept near the back door rather than in the main part of the house. Their watches would also never work again. And Borney noted that the leather strap on his binoculars were torn, though he could not recall tearing it at the time. And the toes of his best-dressed shoes were inexplicably scraped. Now, they took long showers to remove possible contamination, and each drew a picture of what they had observed, and their drawings were strikingly similar. So that in itself is interesting as well. Now, the Hills say they tried to reconstruct the chronology of events as they witnessed the UFO and drove home. But immediately after they heard the buzzing sounds, the memories became incomplete and fragmented. Uh, They vaguely recall a luminous moon shape sitting on the road. And Barney recalled saying, oh no, not again. And Benny thought, Betty thought Barney had taken a sharp left uh, off of Route 3. So there again is the the object on the road. So this this is interesting. And uh, after sleeping for a few hours, Betty awoke and placed the shoes and clothing she had worn uh, during the drive in her closet. And she observed that the dress was torn at the hem, the zipper, and the lining. Now, later, when she retrieved the items from her closet, she noticed a pinkish powder on her dress. She hung the dress on the clothesline, and the pink powder blew away. But the dress was irreparably damaged. She threw it away. But for some reason, she changed her mind, retrieved the dress, and she hung it in her closet. Now, over the years, five laboratories have conducted chemical and forensic analysis on this dress. Now, I could not find where the analysis is anywhere. Uh, I tried to look. So if anybody can find that information on, you know, where this analysis was done, what kind of test they did, please let me know because I'd be very interested in uh finding this out now there were shiny concentric circles on a car's trunk that had not been there the previous day now betty and barney experimented with a compass noting that when they moved it close to the spots the needle would turn rapidly but when they moved it a few inches away from the shiny spots the needle would just drop so that's interesting and it's kind of interesting because what would make you think about using a compass you know what I mean? I mean, what was the, I wonder what the, the thought process was leading up to a compass. Now, on September 21st, Betty telephoned Peace Air Force Base to uh, report the UFO. And 
Because of fear of being labeled, uh, she withheld some of the details. And on September 22nd, Major Paul W. Henderson telephoned the Hills for a more detailed interview. Now, Henderson's report, it was dated September 26, determined that the Hills had probably misidentified the planet Jupiter. Now, this was later changed to optical conditions, uh, inversion, and insufficient data. So, his report was forwarded to Project Blue Book, uh, the U.S. Air Force's UFO research project. Now, within days of the encounter, Betty borrowed a UFO book from a local library. It's been written by retired Marine Corps uh, Major Donald E. Kehoe, uh, who was also the head of NICAP. And NICAP's a civilian UFO research group. And they're still around, actually. Uh, them and another one called MUFON. So you can look them up, folks. Uh, NICAP and MUFON. Great, uh, great sources of information for UFOs and, and aliens. Now, on September 26, Betty wrote to Kehoe. She related the full story, including the details about the humanoid figures that Barney had observed through binoculars. Now, Betty wrote that she and Barney were considering hypnosis to help recall what happened. And her letter was eventually passed on to Walter Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member. Now, Webb met with the Hills on October 21st, 1961. And in a six-hour interview, the Hills related all they could remember about the UFO encounter. Barney asserted that he had developed a sort of mental block and that he suspected there were some portions of the event that he didn't wish to remember. And again, this kind of plays into uh, other people who have kind of had their memory uh, what seems to be kind of wiped out, but yet um, the suppression of a bad encounter, absolutely. I mean, you could definitely suppress that from your memory. Now, he described in detail all that he could, and he tried to remember the appearance of the somehow not human figures aboard the craft. Now, Webb stated that they were telling the truth, and the incident probably occurred exactly as reported, except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that, you know, you kind of have to tolerate and these kind of things, you know, where human judgments involve, like, trying to remember exact times, uh, length of visibility, apparent size of objects and occupants, you know, distance and height. You know, those kind of things kind of get... Uh, looked over uh it's not that they get looked over it's just that we can't under a traumatic event uh we kind of tend to uh not remember those things now 10 days after the ufo encounter betty began having a series of dreams they continued for five successful nights and never in her memory had she recalled dreams in such detail and intensity but they stopped abruptly after five nights and never returned again now, they occupied her thoughts, though, during the day. And when she finally did mention them to Barney, he was, you know, kind of sympathetic, but not too concerned. And the matter was dropped. Uh, 
apparently Betty didn't talk about it again to Barney. He, he had said before that there was things that he didn't want to talk about, and it was kind of suppressing his memory. So, I mean, I'm sure that would that would give you anxiety as well. I mean, being attacked, or not attacked, but abducted and who knows what all happened. So in November 1961, Betty began writing down the details of her dreams. And in one dream, she and Barney encountered a roadblock and men who surrounded their car. So here we go with this type of uh, recollection. Now, as if you can remember, they talked about men in shiny uniforms with black caps. Then they said about a roadblock. They said about this thing in the middle of the road, this orb-type thing. And uh, now she's talking about the roadblock and men who surrounded their car. Now, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I really feel that perhaps there was some kind of military training or there was something going on. Now... We'll never know. And I tried to find out more information, but I could only find more of Webb's um, kind of synopsis of, of what was said uh, in a couple of his interviews. Now, she lost. She said she lost consciousness, but she struggled to regain it. Uh, she said she then realized that she was being forced by two small men to walk in a forest in the nighttime. And she also said she seen Barney walking behind her. Uh, though when she called to him, he seemed to be in a trance or kind of like sleepwalking. Now the men stood about five feet to five feet four inches, four you know five feet five, and they wore matching uniforms with the caps similar to those worn by military cadets. Uh, they appeared nearly human but with bald heads, large wraparound eyes, small ears, and almost absent noses, and their skin was a grayish color. Now, could you have been... Could you have been, like, drugged? Now, you... And what you're rec re recollecting is you're seeing the the uh, roadblock, you're seeing the the men in their uniforms you're seeing this big bright light from whatever's going on whether it really was a ufo or some kind of military training exercise and perhaps because it was super top secret they were drugged somehow so that they couldn't remember what they seen it's, it's interesting very interesting now in the dreams betty barney and the men walked up a ramp into a disc-shaped craft of metallic appearance. And once inside, Barney and Betty were separated. Uh, she protested and was told by a man she called the leader that if she and Barney were examined together, it would take much longer to conduct the exams. And this kind of coincides with other people, too, because they have, other people that claim abduction say that um, they are separated from anyone they're with. So this, this makes sense too. Now, uh, her and Barney were taken to separate rooms and Betty then dreamt that a new man, similar to the others, 
uh, entered and conducted the exam with the leader. Now, Betty called this new man the examiner and said he had a pleasant, calm manner. Now, though the leader and the examiner both spoke to her in English, the examiner's command of the language seemed imperfect and she had difficulty understanding him. So that could be from, you know, anything. Now, the examiner told Betty that he would conduct a few tests to note the differences between humans and the craft's occupants. Now, it's kind of, I, I have to just say this right now. Now, if if we have, if we have beings that are beyond our means and capability, would they need to research us? I mean, we're, we would, even if they're just observing us, I mean, we, we walk into cars and I mean, we're not very, <laughs> we're not very, uh, stable beings, you know, <laughs> I know I, I trip going up steps. So, you know, how do you fall going upstairs? I don't know, but I did. <laughs> I've uh, walked into parked cars too. So, but, uh, anyway, this, uh, the, this, this humanoid, I'm guessing, um, he seated her on a chair and a bright light was shined down on her. Now the man cut off a lock of Betty's hair. He examined her eyes, her ears, uh, mouth, throat, hands, teeth, um, even took some trimmings of her fingernails. And after examining her legs and feet, the man then used a dull knife similar to a letter opener to scrape some of her skin onto what resembled cellophane. Uh, he then tested her nervous system and he thrust the needle into her navel. And that caused Betty agonizing pain. But the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes and the pain vanished. Now, the examiner left the room and Betty engaged in conversation with the leader. And she picked up some kind of like a book with strange symbols that the leader said she could take with her. Uh, she also asked where he was from and pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. Now, it's kind of, to me, I have to just say that uh, he pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. And and it's the first thing that jumps into my mind is, do you remember when you was a youngster and you was in school and they'd pull down those, those uh, round... <laughs> like blinds, but they had maps on. Well, this kind of reminds me of that. And it would have been very popular in that time period. So I'm just kind of wondering. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not here to debunk their claim of alien abduction. I am here to just read the synopsis of what happened and let you decide. Now, in Betty's dream account, the man began escorting the hills from the ship when a disagreement broke out. Now, the leader then informed Betty that she couldn't keep the book, stating that they had decided that the other men did not want her to even remember the encounter, which is kind of strange that they would even say that to her, you know, well, we don't want you to take it and, 
you know, we come to a consensus that, you know, we don't even want you to remember this. <laughs> so now Betty insisted that no matter what they did to her memory, she'd one day recall the events. Now, her and Barney were taken to the car where the leader suggested that they wait to watch the craft's departure. Uh, and they did so. And then they resumed their drive. Now, on November 25th, 1961, the Hills were again interviewed at length by NICAP members, this time C.D. Jackson and Robert E. Homan. Now, having read Webb's initial report, Jackson and Homan had many questions for the Hills, and one of their main questions was about the length of the trip. Now, neither Webb nor the Hills had noted that um, though the drive should have taken about four hours, uh, they didn't arrive home until seven hours after their departure. Uh, when Homan and Jackson noted the discrepancy to the hills, the couple had no explanation. Uh, frequently reported circumstance and alleged alien abduction cases that some have called missing time. And it makes sense because, you know, again, doing research and reading up uh, the people that are that claim the alien abduction often claim they hear that hum, that buzzing, whatever that is, and then they lose time. Like their their memory's been wiped away or what have you. Now, Clark writes, despite all the efforts, the Hills could recall almost nothing of the 35 miles between Indian Head and Ashland. And although Betty recalls that her recollection was somewhat fuller than Barney's, both were able to recall an image of a fiery orb sitting on the ground. So there you have that orb on the ground by the roadblock with the men in their uh, uniforms and caps. Now, uh, Betty and Barney tried to reason that it must have been the moon. But Homan and Jackson informed them that the moon had set earlier in the evening. Yeah, you can get that information. Now, perhaps hypnosis could unlock the missing memories. Now, Barney was apprehensive about hypnosis, but he thought it might help Betty put to rest what Barney described as the nonsense about her dreams. So I'm not quite sure uh, why he would call it nonsense about her dreams unless he was really just trying to uh, put this whole experience behind them. Now, by February 1962, the Hills were making frequent re uh, weekend drives to White Mountains. Now, they were hoping that by going back and revisiting the site, it might spark more memories. Uh, they were unsuccessful in trying to locate the site where they observed a fiery orb sitting in the road. However, they were able to eliminate several possible routes. They found the capture site on Labor Day weekend in 1965. Now, on November 23rd, 1962, the Hills attended a meeting at the parsonage of their church where the invited guest speaker was Captain Ben H. Sweat. And if I don't say that right, S-W-E-T-T, -T, Sweat. If I'm not saying it right, please, please go easy on me. 
And uh, he was of the U.S. Air Force. And he recently published a book of his poetry. Now, after he read sections of his poetry, uh, the pastor asked him to discuss his personal interest in hypnosis. After the meeting broke, uh, the Hills approached Captain Sweat and privately kind of told him what they remember of their strange encounter. Now, he was particularly interested in the missing time of the account. Now, the Hills asked Sweat if he would hypnotize them to recover their memories. But Sweat said he was not qualified to do that, and he cautioned them against doing it uh, by going to an amateur hypnotist, one that can claim uh, they can do it. Now, on March 3rd, 1963, the Hills first publicly discussed the UFO encounter with a group at their church. So now this was a couple years later. They are, you know, more adept to talking about uh, what had happened. Now, back in the 60s, too, there was like this big craze of sci-fi things. Um, I can remember, like, my father... Uh, watching different sci-fi shows. He liked the sci-fi stuff. And uh, so it really makes kind of sense that perhaps maybe their their recollections could be mingling with other different visions of, like, movies and, uh, well, again, we have this military type of thing. Maybe, uh, who knows? I really don't know, and I, I'm just speculating. Now, on September 7th, 1963, Captain Sweat gave a formal lecture on hypnosis to a meeting at the Unitarian Church. And after the lecture, the Hills told him that Barney was going to a psychiatrist, Dr. Stevens, whom he liked and trusted. Now, Captain Sweat suggested that Barney ask Dr. Stevens about the use of hypnosis in his case. Now, when Barney next met with Dr. Stevens, he asked about hypnosis. Stevens referred the Hills to Dr. Benjamin Simon of Boston. And on November 3rd, 1963, the Hills spoke before an amateur UFO study group, the two-state UFO study group in Quincy Center, Massachusetts. Now, the Hills first met Dr. Simon on December 14, 1963, and early in their discussions, Simon determined that the UFO encounters was causing Barney far more worry and anxiety than he was willing to admit. Which, you know, I can definitely understand this because, yeah, that would be a traumatic experience for sure. Now, though Simon dismissed the popular extraterrestrial uh, hypothesis as impossible, it seemed obvious to him that the Hills genuinely thought that they witnessed a UFO with human-like occupants. So Simon hoped to uncover more about the experience through hypnosis. I mean, think about it. That would be one heck of a story to tell. And yes, tons of people would be like, no, that never happened. <laughs> and who knows? I mean, I couldn't see them. What would their point be? What would they gain? Back in 1960s, what, what would you gain by saying you was abducted? I mean, news didn't travel like it like it does on the Internet. I mean, you can post something five minutes later, you know, a million people seen it already. Now, Simon began hypnotizing the Hills on January 4th, 1964. And he hypnotized Betty and Barney several times each. 
and the sessions lasted until June 6, 1964. Simon conducted the sessions on Barney and Betty separately, so they could not overhear one another's recollections. And at the end of each session, he reinstated the amnesia. Now, I'm, again, I tried to find these sessions that would be on tape, uh, probably reel to reel back then. So even notes and things like that. And I really, I couldn't find anything now, whether they are in the college, uh, in boxes with the rest of, of Betty's stuff. Uh, it's, it's very hard to tell. And I do believe reading the contents of the boxes and storage that, uh, they did have some kind of, uh, session notes and things like that. I'd have to relook that up. But uh, now Simon hypnotized Barney first, and his recall of witnessing non-human figure, figures, it was quite emotional. Uh, it was punctuated with expressions of fear, emotion, uh, the outbursts, and the just overall anxiety and stress of what he was dealing with. Uh, Borny said that due to his fear, he kept his eyes closed for much of the abduction and physical examination. Now, based on these early responses, Simon told Borny that he would not remember the hypnosis sessions until he was certain he could remember them without being further traumatized. Now, under hypnosis, uh, as he was consistent with his conscious recall, Borney reported that binocular strap had broken when he ran from the UFO back to his car. Uh, he recalled driving the car away from the UFO, but that afterwards he felt irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. Uh, he eventually sighted six men standing in the dirt road. The car stalled, and three of the men approached the car. Uh, they told Barney not to fear him, and he was... Still anxious. However, um, he reported that the leader told Barney to close his eyes. And while hypnotized, Barney said, I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, I, uh, I, I, I find that, you know, I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. What a strange thing to say. <laughs> but anyway... Barney described the beings as generally similar to Betty's uh, hypnotic, not dream recollection. Now, the beings often stared into his eyes, said Barney, with a terrifying, mesmerizing effect. Under hypnosis, Barney said things like, oh, these eyes, they're in my brain. And that was from his first hypnosis session. And... I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine and I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. And that's from his second uh, hypnosis session. And all I see are these eyes. I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. That's very strange. Very, very strange. And, uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't even have any words for that, folks. Now, Barney related that uh, he and Betty were taken onto the disc-shaped craft where they were separated. And he was escorted to a room by three of the men and told to lie on a small rectangular exam table. Now, unlike Betty, Barney's narrative of the exam was fragmented. And he continued to keep his eyes closed for most of the exam. Now, he does remember like a cup-like device that was placed over his genitals. Uh, he did not experience an orgasm, though Barney thought a sperm sample had been taken. Now, the men scraped his skin, and they peered in his eyes and ears and mouth. A tube cylinder was inserted into his rectum, and someone felt his spine and seemed to be counting his vertebrae. Now, while Betty reported extended conversations with the beings in English, Borney said that he had heard them speaking in a mumbling language that he didn't understand. Uh, Betty also mentioned this in detail. Uh, the few times they communicated with him, Borney said it seemed to be thought transference. At the time, he was completely unfamiliar with the word telepathy. Now, both Betty and Borney stated that they hadn't observed the being's mouth moving when they communicated in English with them. And this kind of plays along with other encounters people had with aliens. And it's also shown in, in movies as well where, you know, you have your being, but it, it's speaking to them, but not using their mouth. So, yes, very interesting stuff. Now, he recalled being escorted from the ship and taken to his car, which was now near the road rather than inside the woods. And in a daze, he watched the ship leave. Borny remembered a light appearing on the road, and he said, oh, no, not again. And he recalled Betty's speculation that the light might have been the moon, though the moon had in fact set several hours earlier. Now, he also stated that he attempted to produce the code-like buzzing sounds which seemed to strike the car's trunk, and a second time by driving from side to side and stopping and starting the vehicle, and his attempt was unsuccessful. Now, under hypnosis, Betty, her account was very similar to the events of her five dreams about the UFO abduction. But there were also noticeable differences. And under hypnosis, her capture and release was different. Uh, the technology in the craft was different. The short men had a significantly different physical appearance than the ones in her dreams. And the sequential order of the abduction events was also different than in Betty's dream accounts. Now, she filled in many of the details that were not in her dreams and contradicted some of her dream content. Now, it is interesting that Barney's and Betty's memories in hypnotic regression were consistent, but contradicted some of the information in Betty's dreams. Which, I mean, I can understand. I mean, you're not going to remember everything. And when you start going, uh, taking your dreams and then what you think happened, and it could all start to, you know, kind of cram together. So now Betty exhibited considerable emotional distress during her capture and examination. Now, Dr. Simon ended one of her sessions early because she began to cry 
And uh, she was in considerable agony while telling this to the doctor. Now, Dr. Simon gave Betty the post-hypnotic suggestion that she could sketch a copy of the star map that she later described as a three-dimensional projection similar to a hologram. Now, she hesitated, thinking she would be unable to accurately depict the three-dimensional quality of the map. Uh, She said she saw on the ship, but eventually, however, she did what Simon suggested, and she tried to draw this out. Now, although she said the map had many stars, she drew only those that stood out in her memory. Uh, Her map consisted of 12 prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinct triangle. Now, she said she was told the stars connected by solid lines formed trade routes, whereas dashed lines were to less traveled stars. So that's interesting. So it's almost like a, you know, a highway map. So interesting. Now, after extensive hypnosis sessions, Dr. Simon concluded that Barney's recall of the UFO encounter was a fantasy inspired by Betty's dreams. And though Simon admitted his uh, hypothesis did not explain every aspect of their experience, he thought it was the most plausible and consistent explanation. Now, Barney rejected this idea, noting that while their memories were in some regards interlocking, they were also portions of both their narratives that were unique to each. And Barney was now ready to accept that they had been abducted by occupants of a UFO. Uh, he though he never embraced it like Betty did. Betty really come out and she was talking about it to everybody. And Barney kind of, you know, <laughs> he had reservations and and you know back then I would have too. So now though the Hills and Simon disagreed about the nature of the case, uh, they all concurred that the hypnosis sessions were effective. The Hills were no longer tormented by anxiety about the UFO encounter. Now, afterwards, Simon went on and he wrote an article about the Hills for the journal Psychiatric Opinion and explaining his conclusions that the case was a singular psychological aberration. Now, the Hills went back to their regular lives as best as they could. Uh, They were willing to discuss the UFO encounter with friends and some family and occasional UFO researcher. But the Hills apparently made no effort to seek publicity. I mean, really, what would they have to have gained? Nothing. In that time period, I mean, there was nothing to gain. Uh, On October 25th, 1965, a newspaper story changed everything, though. And a front page story on the Boston Traveler. Asked UFO chiller, did they seize the couple? And reporter John H. Luttrell of The Traveler had allegedly been given an audio tape recording of the lecture uh, the Hills made in the Quincy Center in late 1963. Now, Luttrell learned that the Hills had undergone hypnosis with Dr. Simon. He also obtained notes from the confidential interviews the Hills had given to UFO investigators. And on October 26th, the IPI, the UPI, I apologize, uh, picked up Luttrell's story and the Hills earned international attention. So it would have took a while, obviously, as it did. 
Uh, but things leak, and yeah. <laughs> now, in 1966, writer John G. Fuller secured the cooperation of the Hills and Dr. Simon and wrote the book The Interrupted Journey. It was all about the case. Now, the book included a copy of Betty's sketch from the star map. The book was a quick success and went through several painting, uh, printings. Now, here's the thing. Even though they didn't want the attention, uh, they eventually ended up getting the attention. And like anybody else, you're going to roll with it. So uh, now Barney died uh, February 25th, 1969. He was 46. He died at a very young age. And Betty died on October 17th, 2004. She was 85. Now, in 1968, Marjorie Fish of Oak Harbor, uh, she read the Fuller's Interrupted Journey, and she was an elementary school teacher and amateur astronomer at the time. Now, she was intrigued by the star map, and Fish wondered if it might be deciphered to determine what star system the UFO came from. Now, assuming that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent the Earth's sun. So, Fish constructed a three-dimensional model of nearby sun-like stars using thread and beads. Now, basing stellar distances on those published in 1969, Glee's Star Catalog, uh, studying thousands of vantage points over several years, the only one that seemed to match the hill map was from the viewpoint of the double star system of Zeta Reticuli. Now, distance information needed to match three stars, uh, forming the distinctive triangle Hill said she remembered. Uh, it was not generally available until 1969 Glee's catalog came out. Now, Fish sent her analysis to Webb. Agreeing with her conclusion, Webb sent the mat to Terrence Dickinson, editor of the popular magazine Astronomy. Now, Dickinson did not endorse Fish and Webb's conclusions, but for the first time in the journal's history, astronomy invited comments and debate on a UFO report stating that uh, an opening article, it was starting with an opening article in December 1974 issue of Astronomy. Now, for about a year afterward, the opinions page of astronomy carried arguments for and against Fish's star map. Now, notable was an argument made by Carl Sagan and Stephen Soder. Now, arguing that the seeming star map was a little more than a random alignment of chance points. And in contrast, those more favorable to the map, such as Dr. David Saunders, uh, a statistician, who had been on the, the Condon UFO study, they argued that unusual alignment of key sun-like stars in a plane centered around the Zeta Reticuli. It was first described by Fish. Uh, it was statistically improbable to have happened by chance from a random group of stars in our immediate neighborhood. Now, skeptic Robert Schaefer in an accompanying article said that a map devised by Charles W. Attenberg, 
uh, Atterberg, excuse me, um, about the same time as Fish was even better matched to Hill's map and made more sense. Now, the base stars, the Epsilon, Indy, and Epsilon Eridani. If I say that wrong, don't, uh, <laughs> don't hold it against me. Now, uh, plus the others were also close to the sun than the hills map. Now, Fish counter-argued that the base stars in the Atterberg map were considered much less likely to harbor life than the Zeta Reticuli, and the map lacked a consistent grouping of sun-like stars along the line's routes. In 1993, two German crop circle enthusiasts suggested that the map depicted planets in the solar system, not nearby stars. Now, the objects in the map, they said, closely matched the positions of the sun, the six inner planets, and several asteroids around the time of the incident. Now, this would parallel other abduction accounts where witnesses claim to be shown such depictions, though admittedly often elaborate and unmistakably our own solar system. Now, in 1966, the publication of Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller details much of the Hill's claims. Uh, excerpts of the book were published in Look magazine, and Interrupted Journey went on to sell many copies and greatly publicized the Hill's account. Uh, Betty's niece, Kathleen Morden, uh, explored Fuller's themes along with scientist Stanton T. Friedman in her book, Captured. The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Now, Martin knew Betty well and had spoken with her at great length about the encounter. Now, later, Betty claimed to have seen UFOs a number of times after the initial abduction, and she became a celebrity in the UFO committee or community. And again, like I said, you start out, you don't want the, notar the notarization, you don't want to be known and things happen and, you know, data leaks. And now you're, you know, caught up in this great, big, huge thing. Now, psychiatrists reported later, uh, suggested that the supposed abduction was a hallucination brought on by stress of being an interracial couple in the early sixties. Uh, Betty discounted this suggestion. Uh, noting her relationship with Barney was happy and their interracial marriage uh, caused no notable problems with their friends or family. As noted in her interrupted journey, Dr. Simon thought that the Hill's marital status had nothing to do with the UFO encounter. And uh, yes, even though in the 60s, uh, interracial couples was shunned upon, uh, and would have caused major stress, uh, Dr. Simon believed that that had nothing to do with their UFO encounter. Now, skeptic blogger Brian Dunning reports that the hypnosis sessions occurred over two years after the reported abductions, plenty of time for the couple to discuss their encounter. In a 2008 article, Dunning calls their story merely an inventive tale of the mind of a lifelong UFO fanatic and is unsupported by any useful evidence and is perfectly consistent with the purely natural explanation. 
Now, I agree that some of it could definitely be fabricated. Though I also agree that it could be, as I mentioned before, it could be some kind of military operation, secret operation. It could have been a lot of different things. But one thing was for certain is their stories over the year remain consistent. Hers remained hers. His remained his. And it's weird because that... uh, that usually never happens. If you're lying about something, you have to continue the lie and you're going to lie to cover up this lie and so and so. And before long, the whole thing is completely screwed up. So this to me gives it a little bit of credibility. Now, in his 1990 article, entirely under, under uh, entirely unpredisposed, Martin Cottemeyer suggested that Barney's memory uh, revealed under hypnosis that might have been influenced by an episode of the science fiction television show, The Outer Limits, The Bolero Shield, which was broadcast about two weeks before Barney's first hypnotic session. Now, the episode featured an extraterrestrial with large eyes who says, in all the universe and all the unities beyond the universes, All who have eyes have eyes that speak. Now, is it possible? Absolutely. And I had said before that it could be a number of different things, including, you know, sci-fi mixed in with, you know what I mean? There could have been a lot of things. So now the report from the regression featured a scenario that was in some respects similar to the television show. In part, Kaltemeyer wrote... Wraparound eyes are an extreme rarity in science fiction films. I know of only one instance. They appeared on the alien of an episode in an old TV series, The Outer Limits, entitled The Bolero Shield. Now, a person familiar with Barney's sketch in The Interrupted Journey and the sketch done in collaboration with artist David Baker will find a frisson of deja vu creeping up his spine when seeing this episode. Uh, the resemblance is much abated by an absence of ears, hair, and nose on both aliens. Could it be by chance? So consider this. Barney first described and drew the wraparound eyes during the hypnosis session dated on February 22, 1964. The Bolero Shield was first broadcast on February 10th, 1964. That was 12 days separate from the two instances. If the identification is omitted, the commonness of wraparound eyes in the abduction literature falls to cultural forces. When a different researcher asked Betty about the outer limits, she insisted she had never heard of it. Now, Connemeyer also pointed out that uh, some motives in the Hills accounts were present in the 1953 film Invaders from Mars. A careful analysis of Barney's description of the non-human entities that he observed reveals significant differences between the Bifrost Man and Barney's descriptive details. Now, one must also take into account Barney's conscious recall of the entities he observed on the hovering craft. They were dressed in black, with shiny uniforms, and were somehow not human. 
Now, Jim McDonald, a resident of the area in which the Hills claimed to have been abducted, was uh, has produced a detailed analysis of their journey, which concludes that the episode was, in fact, provoked by their misperceiving an aircraft warning beacon on Cannon Mountain as a UFO. Now, McDonald notes that from the road, the hills took the beacon, uh, appears. The, let, me, let me back up here. Now, McDonald notes that from the road the hills took, the beacon appears to disappear at exactly the same time the hills describe the UFO as appearing and disappearing. But that still doesn't that doesn't uh, explain the roadblock, the people they seen in the shiny uniforms. It doesn't explain that. So anyway, the remainder of the experience is ascribed to stress, sleep deprivation, false memories recovered under hypnosis. And UFO expert Robert Schaefer writes after reading McDonald's recreation that the hills are the poster children for not driving when you're sleep deprived. Now, McDonald's article focused primarily on Hill's observation of the light in the sky and the timing of the journey. It's discontinuing the Hill's accounts of close encounters south of Cannon Mountain as recovered memories. Schaefer reports that Betty Hill, as late as 1977, would still go on UFO uh, vigils three times a week. Uh, During one evening, she was joined by UFO enthusiast John Oswalt. When asked about Betty's continuing UFO observation, Oswalt stated, She's not really seeing UFOs, but she's calling them that. On the night they went out together, Mrs. Hill was unable to distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight. In a later interview, Schaefer recounts that Betty Hill writes, UFOs are a new science, and our science cannot explain them. How interesting. Now, of course, you're always going to have skeptics. And, you know, having a skeptical mind... uh, it has its downsides. It has its pluses, but it has more down minuses than it does pluses. Now, I'm not saying that people should be a blind believer in UFOs, but you you have to use a scientific method when it comes to UFOs and aliens and ghosts. And you don't want to um, throw your cards all on a table and say, okay, well, it's it's definitely UFOs and you don't want to put your cards on the table and say, it's definitely not UFOs. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's one of those things where the paranormal, no matter what aliens, UFOs, uh, ghosts, hauntings, the paranormal can't be proven. So it's up to you whether you would, believe their story and it's up to you to disprove their story. Now the burden of proof lies on them. They, this is their claim, their story, their experience. Now, rightfully we can't take away someone's experience because it's their experience. They experienced it. 
This is what they believe happened. So we can't really take it away, but we can't prove it neither. We can't prove it nor disprove it. And that's the that's the thing about uh, the paranormal. The paranormal is um, it's definitely a uh, like a double edged sword. <laughs> so, but uh, anyway, hey, thank you everybody very much for uh, for watching and listening. And uh, uh, if you can, please hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, the little bell notification button. <laughs> and uh, I'll just keep making more of these if, if that's what you want. And uh, I do not mind. And I thank you very much. And uh, I hope you all have a wonderful evening. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me on Paranomaly. Thank you.